Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. My name's Kate Broderick and I'm a Sydney-based speech pathologist and occupational therapist. I work in my private practice, Spot Therapy Hub, which is a neurodiversity-affirming, airway-focused practice that reflects my own special interests in areas like orofacial myology and breathing. And another topic that is relevant to all people that I'm passionate about supporting feeding. So I'm very excited to be chatting today to Carly Vaness, who shares that interest in feeding and I feel has a particularly unique voice in the area of paediatric feeding. Now, Carly is a Melbourne-based speech pathologist who's worked in a variety of early intervention, public hospital, NICU and special care nursery roles. She has a public appointment at the Women's Hospital NICU, but these days spends most of her time working in her private practice, Babylon Munch Speech Pathology. She offers direct support to families, as well as education and training to health professionals, which is how our paths first crossed. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Carly to the conversation. Welcome, Carly. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be here to chat about my favourite topic today. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear you go more in depth with um, some things that I'm very interested in. Now, I intentionally kept your introduction brief as I thought it would be really helpful to let you tell us more about your journey as a speech pathologist. It might give others an idea of possible pathways that they could follow in their career, particularly if they're interested in paediatric feeding. And I also believe that our personal journey often shapes our experience and development as professionals. So I thought if you have any reflections that come from your parenting experiences, it would be really lovely to hear about those as well and the way that that has probably influenced the path that you've followed. So I'll hand over to you. Sure. Thanks, Kate. And I love sharing about my journey into paediatric feeding because I know a lot of speech pathologists are really interested in this area, um, but it can also seem overwhelming not knowing where to start in what can be quite a complex area. So I do love to share how it is possible to get experience in this area and build expertise. Uh, so I think we, I mean, we all start out somewhere in our journey knowing little to nothing about paediatric feeding, and that's definitely where I started. So at university about 20 years ago, I had great training in dysphagia, but it was more adult focused. So in fact, I think I can only remember a one hour lecture specifically on infant and pediatric feeding in my whole degree. Um, I had a little experience, uh, a little exposure during a clinical placement, but it wasn't the major focus. And my first job um, that I applied for out of uni was a paediatric feeding hospital job and I didn't get it. So I just want to share that as well. Like, don't give up. Um, we all start out uh, from scratch, basically. So I didn't get this paediatric feeding job that I really wanted. Um, and instead, I started working in research. Uh, so I had that research role initially and then I started working in early intervention. So that was my first clinical role. 
At that stage, I was still learning how to be a speech pathologist, let alone how to help some of the children I saw who had extremely restricted diets. So kids who just wanted white bread with sprinkles um, as their main thing they ate. And so I felt, to be honest, I probably felt a bit lost in that area and not sure how to proceed. I didn't have access to supervision specific to paediatric feeding and there probably weren't many training options in Australia at that time. And I think nowadays there's a lot more options. And since COVID with a lot more going online, that's been really great to see as well. So um, so starting in early intervention was a good base just to, to get some understanding of my role as a speech pathologist, all the areas um, of, of the child and how that can impact feeding. Um, but I wasn't really sure how to go deeper in that area. Um, I got a bit more experience in feeding in my next role, working with children with vision impairment. And so I was had children who had feeding problems and I read all that I could. So I read books, I read articles. If there was a talk on feeding, I was there. And when a child had feeding difficulties, I focused on helping them develop their skills and comfort with feeding. So I knew that it was something that just sort of clicked for me, like I really felt drawn to it and I was building my skills, but I didn't really have like a whole framework, I guess, from what to work from. I just knew that um, I was following the child's lead and that we were focusing on building skill while keeping them um uh, like comfortable and not pressuring and so that was sort of where I started doing more in feeding uh, but probably for me the turning point for my feeding career was getting a three-month casual backfill position at a pediatric hospital so um, I left a kind of a permanent full-time job to go to this three-month casual job um, so it was a little bit stepping out um, but it did turn into a two-year position focusing largely on infant and paediatric feeding. So it was a brilliant experience. And so I was really able to learn from my colleagues, um, working next to people who were doing the same work and being able to visit um, babies and children on the wards with them um, was a great way to start learning um, in going deeper in that area. Um, and then also just the dish- additional texts and resources that I had available to me um, more I remember attending like a three-day pediatric feeding workshop at that time that was on um, and also for the first time having supervision related to feeding and I know this is something and maybe we'll chat about it a little bit more later but it's something yeah. that um, other therapists find can find hard finding that supervision and mentoring support for feeding so um, you know that was helpful for me there. So through that, I developed a passion for infant feeding, particularly through working regularly in the cardiac unit with um, babies and children having heart surgery and the related feeding and swallowing problems that those babies had, um, those children had from um, having cardiac problems. So I was there pretty much every day on that unit. And then I also saw uh, babies and children in outpatients, in my clinic room, um, kids who were tube feeding. Um, sort of all sorts of things and got a lot of great experience in that area. Um, After that, I went on to work for um, as an infant mental health clinician at a child and youth mental health service. So I was in a speech pathologist role, but I also had this dual role as an infant mental health clinician, um, which was really fascinating and another area that um, I love chatting about. Um, And then I also worked in a special care nursery and did some cover for a NICU so you can kind of see through all that, all my previous experiences built on the ones before. 
um, including starting in early intervention um, without really feeding specific work in that area. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Whenever I'm talking to early career clinicians, just being comfortable to meet your client you know, as, as another person with whatever their, you know, background, you know, profile might be is often the starting point with your skills in your journey. But having an idea of what your interests may be and where you want to focus your professional development is also really um, wonderful. And, you know, you've obviously mm. had this passion for feeding from the very, very early stages of your career and it is something that um, you've been able to develop and grow. So, yeah, I mean, Definitely. I yeah. Sorry, I'll um, let you <laughs> I'll hand back over. <laughs> no, definitely. Because um, also, Kate, you asked about my personal experiences as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd just share a little bit about that too because that took me in a whole different journey. So mm-hmm. um, it was about that time like when I was working as an infant mental health clinician and working in a special care nursery um, that I had my own son, which pretty much turned my world on its head Um, and I got a whole different look at feeding problems and medical complexity from the parent's point of view rather than the professional's point of view and it was really hard at the time it was really hard it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done but I like I've taken so much from that experience that I've then been able to bring to my clinical practice and my drive for why I do what I do so you know I can really see the blessings that come out of Um, the struggle of having feeding problems and medical problems as well. Um, So my son had a lot of breastfeeding issues early on, very significant issues. Um, He had tongue tie, he had swallowing problems, um, complex gut and allergy issues, and some of which we're still dealing with now, like nine years later. Um, But at the time, like, you know, I was an infant feeding speech pathologist who felt like I knew a lot about the area. And then here was this child, this baby who I was struggling to feed. Um, And it was a it was a really challenging experience. Um, But then also it showed me like I used to think a little bit about allergy before. And and that was like back then allergy wasn't quite as um, known as it is now. Like obviously it was still an issue, but it's in the last 10 years, it's really become more in the spotlight as um, an issue with the number of the kids that we work with. So I realised like I um, became a member of the Reflux Infant Support Association. I ended up volunteering for them. I learnt as much as I could learn about gastroenterology, about allergy, um, about tongue tie and oral function um, and just really went deeper in learning in that area. Um, and I'm sure there are a number of therapists listening out there who can relate, who find themselves working this area, going deeper because of their own experiences with their own children. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to put my hand up to that one as well. (laughs) Um, and I think that's the thing that I reflect on is, as you say, you know, you were a pediatric feeding speech pathologist and you were still feeling overwhelmed and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it's just that reminder for us as therapists around, uh, you know, the position that our clients are in, um, knowledge is power but actually when you're facing those challenging moments with your own child what you really need isn't just the knowledge um and so that really caring nurturing holistic therapeutic view i think is just very very important particularly with uh tiny babies especially Um, definitely definitely um and 
it really actually shifted the direction of my pediatric feeding career. So that's when I moved into private practice because here I had this little boy who was very sick and unwell and had trouble with separating as well. And I couldn't go back to my full-time job and I just couldn't see myself even traveling like into the city or doing something for a whole day. So I started my private practice initially because I needed to keep, I wanted to keep working in this area. I, you know, I can't stop learning and supporting families in this area, but I had such limited time. So I started four hours a week from a room in the bottom of my house. And that's how Pablo Munch Speech Pathology started. Um, so it's about seven years ago or so. Um, and it, it became like my eyes were open further to problems with oral structure and function, with gastrointestinal allergy issues, as I mentioned, and how this impacted feeding. So I really, in that period, just set out to learn all I could about these areas to help other families. And then, because um, I had therapists approaching me saying, well, I need to learn more about that. Where do I go? And I kept having these same conversations with people wanting to learn more. So then um, my other passion grew, which was teaching other therapists so and speech pathologists um, and helping them to feel more confident with feeding. So... I guess from all that, I just wanted to encourage other speech pathologists interested in this area that it is possible to develop experience and confidence in paediatric feeding, um, even if you're starting from scratch, so to speak. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that sentiment. I hope that it is feeling, you know, yeah, instilling a bit of um, excitement in, <laughs> in people listening right now. Um, look, I'm imagining that a lot of people who are tuning in are doing so because they probably already do have a bit of an interest in paediatric feeding. But just in case it's a new idea, I thought it would be really great to let everybody know why working in paediatric feeding is so wonderful. Let's go through the reasons and sell it. <laughs> sure. Well, obviously I'm very biased, which is why I'm here today. Um, <laughs> but I look, feeding is so crucial and central to just human life. Like you can look at it as a basic human right. Um, you can look at it as um, something that sustains us and it is about life. Like when you look at the really complicated um, and sometimes scary situations with little babies, um it's it's that worrying concern for for the baby and um their you know their development and how they're moving forward so i think feeding is it's so crucial because it's a part of it's also part of every relationship so when you think about a little baby who's feeding like breastfeeding or bottle feeding but let's take breastfeeding um a typical baby would breastfeed eight to 12 times every 24 hours so if um, a baby is feeding that often, that's all that repetition of feeding, of those experiences, of those brain pathways forming around feeding and the oral sensory motor patterns that are happening and their experience of the environment and how they're feeling inside and getting hungry and then getting full and the feelings that come with that, all of that is forming the pathways moving forward for eating and drinking. So it is not just about eating and it's not just about muscles or nerves or the skill that you have, but it's about um, those relationships. It's about attachment. It's about managing stress and distress. Um, and um, when it goes wrong, it's really hard. And number of families have described it to me as being soul destroying is the word that they've used and so my heart really goes out to families who've been in that position um, and I know like I've been in that position as well in in one aspect 
Um, but of how hard it is when your child is not able to eat and drink. Um, we just assume that children will learn, like we take it for granted. And, you know, there's a pathway that children typically learn on from their reflexes moving up. Um, but when something gets in the way of it and there's so many different um, medical conditions and, um, you know, areas that can impact feeding, then it can be really hard and really stressful for families. So I think as a speech pathologist and a therapist, if we can help shift that, we can see some really amazing changes and gains in the feeding and not just the feeding, but in the relationships between babies and children and their families. So as a speech pathologist working in feeding, I can make a huge difference to development family life just by supporting that area of development. Um, and so I just, I really love that role and I love being involved in that way. Oh, I just loved everything you <laughs> shared. You summed it up perfectly. Um, it is. It's just such a wonderful gift that you can give an individual, a child and their whole family if you can help them shift things in a more positive direction. I hope everybody listening again, if you weren't already sold, <laughs> that this is interest in paediatric feeding further. Now, I want to backtrack slightly and just have a chat about your postgraduate study you've completed that grad dip in infant and parent mental health which mm -hmm. I think is amazing and I've completed one of your courses I sent my staff on it and I really do feel that that background um, is very much a part of the, an essential part of the approach that you take and encourage um, so I'd love it if you could talk more about infant mental health and its relationship to feeding. Sure. And as I said, this is another favourite topic of mine that I love to talk about. Um, so I guess for those listening, sometimes it's hard to grasp what does infant mental health mean. So just to give a bit more of an overall definition, um, and this is just, you know, from me, not nothing like that I pulled out of a textbook, but I think of infant mental health as being about children who are in that zero to three age range and their social emotional development that's shaped by those significant relationships around them, so with their parent or carer, um, and that then forms them as a person. So that's my view of infant mental health. And so feeding, as I mentioned before, fits into that because feeding is really the first relationship in a way of that um, responsivity of um, watching the child, their cues, and then responding and altering things looking for hunger and fullness and the child like showing signs, like they're learning from their parent as well, from the way that the parent responds to them. That's how they learn about feeding and their environment and what they think about all of that. So um, I really think of feeding as part of a relationship and that's where that infant mental health approach comes in. So I so I did do that grad dip in infant and parent mental health and it was when I first started working in a paediatric hospital and it was actually on site, which worked out really well. So, um, and it's a bit different now, I think, but it was a year long course. And back then I would go and attend, I think it was a Wednesday afternoon, I'd go over and attend the lectures. Then I had, um, I found a, you know, a family who was just about to have a baby who I went to visit once a week for the whole year and just observe, even if they were sleeping, I just had to observe and write down, um, you know, what I observed, but also what I was feeling because the whole infant mental health field combines developmental psychology really with um, psychoanalytic theory um, and psychodynamic processes from that 
area of, of work. So it was also about how you reflect on things and how you are impacted by what's happening with the baby or in the relationship and then what that can tell you about what might be going on um, as well in the whole system. So I found it really helpful combining that when I was really getting um, deep into feeding because I wasn't just looking at feeding as a skill, but I was looking at it as the relationship, as the foundation of attachment as well as part of that and how I could be there and supporting those things. So um the feeding relationship and my therapy around that is about helping the child to um, be the driver of their feeding and not to be pleasing me as a therapist because I think it can be really easy for kids to want to please us as they're great at developing good relationships with them. Um, But that's not my end goal. I don't want them to be eating to please me or to please the parent or for any other reason or for a reward or anything, but because Um, you know, they want to eat and all children want to eat at some level, but something's in the way when things are going wrong. So um, that's sort of what I think about when I think about um, infant mental health and feeding and about being curious and allowing the child to be curious and explore on their own terms um, and having the comfort and security from those relationships from with their parent and then with me as another kind of containing relationship there to then explore on their own terms. So all of that, um, I guess, is is why I've been drawn to something called responsive feeding therapy, which is a, a form of therapy that relates to um, that approach. Can you tell us a bit more about responsive feeding therapy? So in responsive feeding therapy, it's in terms of a, a term or a, an approach, responsive feeding therapy, it's um, more recent term that's being used to describe therapy that's been happening for quite a long time. And responsive feeding, so the way that um, parents or carers feed their children in a responsive way is actually considered best practice internationally as and has been around as a concept for a very long time. So responsive feeding therapy is then taking that a step further and seeing how can we apply um, those principles along with our therapy practices and principles to support a child in their feeding development. So it's really about focusing on the child's internal drive to eat and this is where it might differ from some other types of therapies where the goal is really, the long-term goal is that child developing their own internal drive to eat so then they can drive that and they can listen to their internal cues and um, build their feeding from that rather than me or someone else externally driving it um, and focus trying to get them to get them to eat so I think that's the key thing if we're trying to get a child to eat then we're um, starting to move into a bit more of their job in this whole feeding relationship. So responsive feeding therapy is focusing on that internal drive to eat, on their um, feeling comfortable in their own bodies and in the relationships with others that they're free to explore and be curious and then they can build their skills in feeding. Um, And so our role in that is to support and provide the supports that children need and their parents need in the environment to then have that freedom to discover or rediscover if there's been things in the way, those internal cues to say, okay, I want to eat or I want to try that um, because I want to do it, not because I want to 
please the therapist or my parent or because they're going to give me, you know, um, ice cream after dinner if I eat eat that broccoli or something. So it's about developing that long-term relationship with food where we're, um, as the person and as the child, can learn to listen to our own internal cues. I hope that sums it up as a start. It's fantastic. I think wearing my OT hat as much as my speechy hat, this really, really resonates with me. I think being child-led and respectful is so important. And what you're talking about, I think is actually empowering and freeing for both the child and the parents. It's not saying there's a strategy or a skill that you have to build. You know, you can see that mounting stress, I think, in caregivers Mm -hmm. sometimes when things aren't working and they put more pressure on themselves to force an outcome. Um, But what we're actually saying is, no, we're just going to sit and create this safe space and things will unfold in an organic way that Mm -hmm. will be positive for everybody in terms of the very specific goal of feeding but also the greater picture of well-being and mental health which is more sustainable obviously for everybody that's so, right um yeah. and and it's not about um that we can't bring our you know therapy techniques to that and mm-hmm. you know the other things that we work on um and bring our own energy and help shape things but we're really led by the child in that and their um their need and that long-term goal of that internal drive to eat yeah, yeah, really, really great. Now, there's so much that we could discuss today because feeding <laughs> is a complex and fascinating mm-hmm. area of practice. But in an attempt to focus on some useful takeaways for listeners, I thought I might ask what you believe the most important thing is. So, you know, what do you think someone needs to know or understand when working with a paediatric feeding client? Sure. So, I think for me, the most important thing is that we need to really get to the bottom of what is going on and why. So why has this child got a feeding problem? Um, you know, when did that start? What else is going on? What happened at that time? What happened earlier? And so really unpick that whole history and that story as well to really work on why um, they're at this point because I really believe you need to know that before you decide, okay, this is what I need to do in therapy or I'm going to use this approach or, um, you know, this technique or this game or whatever people are choosing, um, I really feel that we need to understand why and then we can target, um, know what we need to do next. So I strongly believe, like we see a lot of children who refuse to eat, so I strongly believe that children refuse to eat for a reason. And so it's our job to unpick that and get to the bottom of the child's own experiences to work out what that might be. Um, And so then as speech pathologists, what we would do would be doing that through initially through our case history. And so I take a really detailed case history um, and I ask a lot of questions as well. And through a thorough feeding assessment. So we're looking at all areas of the child's um, development. We're looking at like the medical side and what's going on, because as I said, a number of um, medical problems and conditions can impact feeding. It can be simple as something as constipation um, can impact feeding. So um, we need to be looking at all the systems um, and screening for things that might need referral. Um, And then, you know, nutritional side of things, we need to be working with our colleagues, um, such as dietitians as well, um, when that's required. Um, We're looking at skill and development. Um, And then we're also looking, as I said, about the whole environment and what's happening in the feeding relationship. So there's a lot of areas that need we can't overlook and we need to look carefully and get to the bottom of those. Um, And 
That's why I think it is really important for anyone working in feeding, even if, say, you're working with, let's say, an eight-year-old fussy eater, um, you do need to understand those early foundations of feeding and oral motor development of chewing and other skills in that naught to two age range because that's when the foundations are laid down. And by two to three years of age, that's when um, we have broadly mature um, feeding and swallowing skills to manage a range of textures. Even though we're still you know, learning and developing that and fine-tuning that, that's the age range where not to two to three is where we really lay down those foundations. So I strongly believe anyone working in feeding needs to learn those early stages, even if you're not seeing a baby or a young toddler. Um, you do need to understand that. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. And really, obviously, we know this is something that we're already doing. So if you're not working in paediatric feeding already, you are gathering a case history, but you can start thinking about it from a different perspective and adding that extra layer in and understanding the significance as well of these little details that are coming through with regard to the feeding picture, I suppose, as you say, Mm -hmm. even with older clients. Um, you've already mentioned a couple of other professionals that you work mm-hmm. with regularly. So I'm assuming that multidisciplinary care is something that's a big part of your practice. Is there anyone else that we haven't mentioned yet that you wanted to add on to the to the list of people who could be helpful um, in supporting these clients? Sure. Like, yes, working in a team is so important in feeding. I know it is in a lot of areas um, that we work in, but in feeding, you cannot not have a team you need the team there Um, and so um, for most children I see with feeding problems unless it's an extremely straightforward problem that looks like it's fully within my realm most I would have a pediatrician involved um, because I think all children need that kind of medical workup and oversight to see is there anything we've missed Um, but also to have someone who can coordinate care if needed um, or for any other referrals too so you know we work with a lot of pediatricians Um, we work with other therapists like occupational therapists like yourself Kate as well it's great that you're both an OT and speechy I think that's wonderful Um, so occupational therapists dietitians um, physiotherapists um lactation consultants and I'm working on that one because I've just sat for my IBCLC exam to become a lactation consultant earlier this year so I'm waiting on my results to see to say that publicly hopefully that comes through um to become an IBCLC but certainly like I would still be working with another lactation consultant who focuses just on that area um and, uh, you know, others like dentists, um, but also in the specialist area, I work a lot, you know, as we've kind of alluded to before with gastroenterologists and allergists, because really gastrointestinal issues and gut-based problems have a huge impact on feeding because they impact comfort and, and that's related to intake. So, um, you know, developing those networks with others, um, with other therapists and with the like local um, primary care, like maternal child health and GPs as well, I think is really important to best serving the children we work with. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, now, I'm wondering whether or not you might share a top tip for the speech pathologists out there who want to be doing more work in feeding. What do you think that they could uh, take away with them today to perhaps action in their in their work sure um and i just put out a top tip sheet for ways to get started in feeding therapy without the overwhelm because i know um there's a lot of therapists approaching and ask this exact question how do i get started in feeding therapy i don't have a feeding job 
um, or I'm a new grad and I'm still trying to learn and, um, you know, I'm not ready. I don't have the experience yet. So it is something and happy to, we can include a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to download it. Um, So one of the first things I think all speech pathologists can do is to include some feeding screening questions in their communication case history forms. So I guess that I um, don't know how many people have feeding questions in their communication forms because I do mainly feeding in my practice, so mine are all feeding related or in some way. Um, but I think it's something that's worth considering, even if you don't see feeding clients, just to put in some questions that are screening for problems in that area. So that would be questions like, was your child breast or bottle fed from birth? And then like for how long? And I think this then really opens up the dialogue about feeding and you can ask more questions, uh, things like, you know, was breastfeeding established? Did you have problems with that? Uh, The timing of changing from breastfeeding to bottle feeding, like could they only breastfeed for two months and then um, they needed to bottle feed Um, or they only bottle fed and, you know, was that because that's what they chose to do or because they couldn't breastfeed? Um, And then the reason, I guess thinking about that reason for the method um, and the timing of feeding. And so a question like that is important because feeding, swallowing and oral function difficulties can often present from very early on and problems with establishing or maintaining breastfeeding or problems with bottle feeding can be a red flag for feeding or oral motor difficulties. So it's not unusual for me if I was seeing, let's pick another age child like a four-year-old who um, only eats like 10 different foods, so a very restricted diet. And it's not unusual to go back through that case history and find out, well, actually they um, had problems latching at birth, um, they grew fatigued and fell asleep, um, or they, um, you know, were becoming distressed around feeding and refusing. And so these are all things that are giving me little red flags. It's something was going on very early on, so it wasn't that they were four and became restricted eater or at two when it became more obvious but something was going on very early on um, right from a baby that could be like an oral motor difficulty with um, latching and sucking and moving their tongue or it could be like a gastrointestinal issue where they're in discomfort and then refusing so there's so many things there to unpick but I think if you're including questions like this in your case history form, even if you're not seeing them feeding, it's a good way just to start that dialogue. It's a lower pressure situation. So you're not having, um, it's you're not seeing them for the first time for their feeding problem if you're not feeling confident with that. But you can start having those, those discussions and get to know more. And then, you know, does this child need a bit more assessment around feeding? Is that something that I can do, observe them, Um, eating and drinking and learn a bit more about those foundations of chewing and um, swallowing and uh, and feeding development or do I need to refer this child on to someone else who can then assess the feeding so I think that's a great way of including screening questions um, for past or present feeding problems and then identifying some of those red flags so you then know okay what's the next steps thank you so much for that Carly I think that's really helpful um Look, I think on that note, it's probably time to say goodbye. So to all the speechies or maybe speech path students who are listening, thank you very much for joining us and uh, be sure to tune in next week uh, on Wednesday for another Speak Up conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.